This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It really did all change at the start of the 20th century because of the Russian Revolution. And we think about some of the really famous Russian dancers or those associated with dancing, like well, Anna Pavlova and Diaghilev, who is the great empresario of the Ballet Russe. They, they left Russia and never went back after the Russian Revolution. So these great Russian ballets then became the repertoire of in Europe and in, in Britain. Hello and welcome to the pod. And after a few military themed episodes, I thought a change would be worthwhile, particularly since we've just had Valentine's Day. And what could be more romantic than ballet? Lucy Ash joins me to talk about its history in the court of Louis XIV. Russian ballet or ballet russe, the point shoes and the difficulties of being a ballerina, as well as major figures in ballet such as Margot Fontaine and Ninette de Valois. Links are in the show notes. Coming up, I've got the Mau Mau Uprising, the history of football, the Mafia, 17th century Japan and plenty more. So please do rate and review and share, share, share. But until then, it's me talking with Lucy Ash on the history of ballet. Okay, Lucy, welcome. It's great pleasure to have you on. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. It's really lovely to be here. And so this is a, a slight change because I decided that our listeners need a bit of culture. Yeah. Having recently listened to a military historian discussing generals of World War One and World War Two, it's, I think, time to have a, a little bit of a, a, a break from that and, and inject some pure culture into our veins. Um, so, Lucy, you are here to do that. So thank you very much. And I should say we're talking, I think, imminently the day before your book is launched, Sleeping Beauties. Yes, it is published tomorrow. So it's an exciting time to be talking about it. Indeed. Indeed. And we're talking about that most romantic of things. And we're talking on Valentine's Day, although this won't actually be going out on Valentine's Day. Um, but what better subject to talk about than the history of ballet? So I, whilst having been to the ballet, so I'm not a complete ignoramus, where did ballet actually begin? Because we've had dance forever. And and you yourself, I should mention, so the listeners are aware, you come with the sort of highest kind of qualifications or a former ballet dancer and just an expert dancer overall. 
Is that fair to say? Uh, well, um, maybe not anymore, but yes, uh, ballet used to be my life. I trained at the Royal Ballet School, um, first as a junior associate um, and then at the boarding school in Richmond Park. And I didn't go on to become a professional ballet dancer. Um, I ended up going into academics and became an English teacher, but I never left ballet behind. And one of the things that I really remember from my time at the Royal Ballet School was the history of ballet lessons that we had. And I was absolutely fascinated by these, I think probably more than anyone else. And actually when I was researching for the Sleeping Beauties, but also for my first novel, Clara and Olivia, I had some opportunities to go back to the Royal Ballet School archives, which are these fascinating rooms um, up at the in one of the buildings of the school and just sort of remind myself of all of those lessons. But um, yes, to go back to your question about where did ballet all begin? Well, really it began in the courts, like the Italian Renaissance courts, and it was not a professional occupation. You didn't have professional ballet dancers. It was something that would, would be there as a kind of court entertainment performed by the courtiers together. Um, and it didn't really look like what we call ballet now, but the big change was in France with Louis XIV, who we know as the Sun King, um, and I'll talk a little bit about why, I suppose, in a moment, but he loved ballet. So he became king of France when he was, I think, five, and had this 72-year reign, um, but he just absolutely loved ballet, and he had a ballet master who he had training with every day. And Louis XIV decided that he wanted ballet to be bigger than it had ever been before. He wanted it to be um, not just court dances, but he wanted it to be have performances in their own right that were, were were ballet performances. And as Versailles was growing, he built what we know as Versailles now. It was already there before, but I think his grandfather built it as quite a small palace, but it was Louis XIV that made it grow. He had all these fates and little theatres he put out around the garden. So as the gardens were getting laid out, he was putting on more and more performances. And um, so he had these ballet masters and he he loved to um, practice ballet. And he he decided that you needed, you needed professional dancers, not just amateur dancers. So he set up the first- Sorry to interrupt you, Lucy. So yeah. does that mean then really it was kind of, people were just, not spontaneously, but they'd seen this sort of practice in the Italian courts and mm -hmm. they just were almost mimicking it. Is it, is it a, a kind of, it's a, a blend between acting and dancing in a way, is it? Well, there is, in some way, you could say that the mime aspects of ballet have got a kind of acting part to them. Um, and some of the early ballets were very mime heavy, um, but actually mime isn't used so much in dance now, because really if you, if you watch some of those early mime sequences, it's quite hard to identify what they're actually trying to sort of say. Um, so ballet these days kind of removes that element and it's more focused on through the dance itself, how you can portray the emotions of the dancers and the story you're trying to tell. But yeah, there was elements of mime, but also just what you would imagine as a, a courtly dance. And it didn't really look a lot like ballet today they would be wearing high heels what we know as the the, the turnout that is so uh, the turnout of the, the legs and the hips that we know is so distinctive from ballet 
the aim these days is you want to get 180 degree turnouts. That would definitely not be something that they would be aiming for back then. It would be very, very different. You didn't have point shoes initially. Like the aim now is to have 180 degree turnout of your hips, but that was definitely not what you would be aiming for um, in the in the Versailles courts of Louis XIV. He set up um, a dance school, a professional company, but still it wasn't really ballets like we see today. Actually, the more common thing was to have opera ballets or comedy ballets. So the opera ballets were this mix of music, singing with some ballet at the same time. And the comedy ballets were actually plays. Uh, Moliere, for example, wrote quite a few. And they would be plays, but there would be little ballet kind of interludes in amongst it. Oh, wonderful. So this grew up in Louis XIV's court. Was, was Did it spread fast or did it take a bit of time? Because, I mean, Louis XIV was hugely influential for many European monarchs. It definitely spread through Europe. Ballet is so interesting because it has this ebb and flow of status. So sometimes it is a court performance, sometimes it's a little divertissement as part of a show or a ballet in its own right. Um, but I suppose the, the next important moment that we could go to would be the Italian Romantic era ballets. And I suppose the most famous dancer would be Marie Taglioni. She sort of, I suppose, represents now what we see, what we imagine as the ballet dancer. So this kind of ethereal woman who's dancing on her toes, wearing like a white chiffon dress of some type she kind of brought that in so it really was a change from from the more courtly style of, of dancing to this kind of ethereal style and Marie uh, Taglioni is so she was born in the early 1800s and her father was in the theatre and he ended up choreographing a lot of her um, ballets so for example La Sylphide is probably the most famous one and she's Swedish but she moved to Vienna and she lived in Paris for a bit so it was it was really it grew up in that kind of style of dance grew up in Italy but she's often credited I think wrongly to be the first dancer to wear point shoes there were actually other dancers that wore point shoes but they weren't particularly elegant I think in the way that they wore them there's <laughs> that a, there's a diplomatic a, way yeah. yeah there's a there's a great um tv documentary I think that's available still at the moment that's just been put on on the BBC called The Magic of Dance by Margot Fontaine well it's sort of led by Margot Fontaine and they've just um put it back up again and she talks about this and she talks about how Marie Taglioni was the first dancer to sort of look good doing point work so the other dancers before had to really kind of use their arms and like heave themselves up and it didn't really look very elegant at all uh, whereas Taglioni was was much more elegant and light in the way that she danced and that's when you have the development of the point shoe um, I don't know if you know much about point shoes but well they look you're gonna have to tolerate some extremely irritatingly stupid questions but or, or comments that but they look incredibly painful so are they painful? They can be very painful if you have not prepared your feet properly or if you've been dancing for many, many hours in that day and they're just becoming bruised and, and sore. In terms of these days, how we prepare for wearing point shoes, 
you will do many years of strengthening exercises before you put on your point your first pair of point shoes so metatarsal exercises that sort of strengthen that area and also just the ballet class itself with all of the plies tendus um are just gradually building up the strength in the feet it looks like a huge amount of strain on the calf muscles as well is that Yes. Ideally, you're using, you're sort of pulling up through out of your hips, you're using your whole, all of your muscles and your legs. Um, But it it does definitely require a lot of strength. But also it's just that the the toes themselves and the skin builds up strength. So one of the things that we used to do at the Royal Ballet School is we would have two buckets, one with cold water, one with surgical spirit, and you just move between, um, or you would also rub surgical spirit on your toes every evening just to try and strengthen the skin Um, because really you want to be able to wear them for as many hours as you need without it becoming painful but if you look back to some of the early point shoes so you know this kind of romantic era time so around the kind of uh, uh, well mid 1800s the point shoes is so soft there's very little protective or stabilizing material and it's kind of amazing to imagine how these dancers were able to support themselves on this shoe whereas the shoes now have got a lot more stability you they're almost too hard you you can't actually dance immediately in a point shoe when you get your new pair of point shoes you have to break it in so um, some dancers hit them on concrete steps some of them hit them with a hammer because you want to try and get the noise out of them so you're not clumping around on the stage sort of uh, you know you want to make them as soft as you can but while also providing support what are they made of? The padding or the yeah, material? So the, what is- yeah, so it's um, leather, satin, and a sort of paste that that goes into it. But they, the the paste and the the canvas as well breaks down quite quickly. So point shoes these days uh, will probably last you uh, as a professional dancer. Maybe you'd get through sort of three or four pairs a week. Um, of a these week? Shoes. Yes, and I, I bet they're not cheap. No, they're not. When I was at school dancing every day by my final year, I was getting through, through about three pairs a week. And you have to, you can't just, as I said, put them on and wear them. You have to sew the ribbons on, sew the elastics on, you have to darn the ends, um, break them in. So your life becomes this cycle of preparing point shoes. And then they become what we call dead. Your point shoes are dead and you have to throw them out and prepare a new pair. Um, so it's, Point shoes is just, I think because of this cycle of repetition, of they're so fragile as well. They almost, for me, feel like like a symbol of the ballet dancer's life, really, the point shoes. Yeah, that's a nice way of, of looking at it. And so, so with these pairs that were a lot softer in the past then, would that mean that they wouldn't have been dancing for as long as may, you know, professional dancers now? It's hard to say for sure because... I think they would have been training quite intensely every day, but the the types of, of performances they would be doing might be slightly different. So we don't actually have obviously any filmed records um, of, of this. So all we can really look at is illustrations, paintings of these early dancers and kind of look at the way they were standing and the way that the position is. And it seems like the dancing was not quite as athletic is how you might call it, describe it now. So I think perhaps the shoes didn't need to be quite as strong. As dancers' legs have got higher, so these 
these days you know, dance is very very flexible there's a huge amount of athleticism that goes into it that has been a real development in ballet you previous you know back in the 1800s you would not be expecting a dancer's leg to be up by their ear that was not what ballet was so as some of that change has has come in the point she has had to adapt as well and so then i was interested in the the music that would be best associated with it because you will get on to the russians and of course mm. i think certainly when i think of ballet i think of tchaikovsky but what were the sort of composers that would be working best with that early form of, of ballet? By the time you get to Tchaikovsky working with in Russia with the ballet master Petipur, to actually be able to have a composer like Tchaikovsky working on a ballet was quite a radical thing because ballet music was seen as needing to be quite simple. It was um, it was seen that if, if the dance if the music was too complex, dancers wouldn't be able to cope with it and actually you need a fairly sort of simple style and then Petipur brought in Tchaikovsky who and actually Tchaikovsky's acquaintances you know, musical friends were actually very surprised that he was working on a ballet he sort of felt that he was wasting his time by working on you know, like Swan Lake Sleeping Beauty whereas of course now that is music that is I suppose we we see that music is so powerful in its own right it's not just because it's attached to a, a ballet um so i think the that late 1800 shift to the creation of these famous petipur russian ballets did also change the way that we saw the relationship between music and ballet and is that because it's quite a conservative world yeah i think so and it it's just a, a a change isn't it to the way they they might see their status and going back to what I said before about the, the status of ballet constantly changing you know sometimes actually be, not being seen as one of the important art forms and at other times being seen as like it's really central to the movement of a particular you know development in art at that time um, so I think with the late 1800s and with Tchaikovsky starting to write for ballet music that was a very important step I'm going to make sure my wife listens to this episode because I took her to the Bolshoi at um, performing uh, Swan Lake and it was extraordinary. But that, that makes me think now that was the involvement of Tchaikovsky, does that then make a Russian ballet first and foremost in the, in the world of ballet? Because even now they have this incredible reputation. They really do. And it's it's very interesting because it wasn't until the French ballet masters went to Russia that Russia took on this great reputation. And Petipur, who's the choreographer of The Sleeping Beauty and many other of the great classical ballets that we know, he's French. And um, he's a French ballet master who went there and worked with the Imperial Ballet Theatre. And there was a lot of support from, from the Tsar um, for ballet. And there was a lot of money that went into it and actually that you could be paid quite a lot as a choreographer, as a dancer in Russia at that time. So I think it's because of those different circumstances that it led to Russia um, creating these wonderful ballets, these wonderful story ballets. But then it really did all change at the start of the 20th century because of the Russian revolution. And we think about some of the really famous Russian 
dancers or those associated with dancing, like well, Anna Pavlova and Diaghilev, who is the great empresario of the Ballet Russe, they, they left Russia and never went back after the Russian Revolution. So these great Russian ballets then became the repertoire of in Europe and in, in Britain. Um, so it's, a re- it's an interesting relationship, I think, to Russia, certainly. Yes, because certainly during, uh, and you can pick me up on, on when this was, but the Soviets took ballet very seriously themselves, didn't they? Yes, they did. But those who had defected, or, you know, who, who had left, um, Serge Diaghilev, the empresario of the Ballet Russe, was sort of written out of Soviet history because he had left in 1909, I think he went to Europe and then he he didn't go back and I mean throughout the 20th century you have dancers leaving in often very dramatic ways while on tour and um, becoming attached to a, a different company you think about Rudolf Nureyev for example you know his um, sort of escaping from he defected he and then he didn't go back so yeah it's a it's a complicated relationship I think. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Yes. And so let's talk about some of those personalities. I mean, you know, Rudolf Neurov is very famous. Margot Fontaine is probably mm-hmm. the most Mar- famous. Yeah. I mean, Margot Fontaine is, she's, she is British ballet. You know, that's, that what, that's what she is. And so her, her name was Peggy Margaret Hookham, and she changed it to Margot Fontaine. Was, in those early years, like the 1930s, early years of British ballet, um, lots of the dancers did change their names to sound more European, Italian, Russian, because it wasn't ballet; just wasn't seen as a British form of art um, up until, well, until really the 1930s, and even then it was it was a little bit slow, because the early part of the 20th century was dominated by the Ballet Russe. So the Ballet Russe was a company that was led by Diaghilev, who was not a dancer himself, but he had this incredible talent for bringing together people who could work wonderfully well together. And he had, he, he was, he could do incredible staging. He brought composers, designers, dancers, and worked with the choreographer Mikhail Fokin, for example, who is, we think of when we think of the ballet russe and some of those early ballets of the 20th century like Petrushka and the firebird and that was so exciting that was actually everyone was sort of excited about the ballet russe and sort of not really thinking about the petipa russian ballets anymore they wanted something new something modern something it it really i think um diaghilev was was um bringing ballet onto the same level as modernist art and literature and, and music and you know, he, he worked with Stravinsky and that's what the British public thought of as ballet was the Russian was the ballet russe so Diaghilev died in 1929 and his company fell apart and lots of dancers did actually create sort of mini versions of the ballet russe and you had a few different companies that represented that 
But this really gave an opportunity for British ballet to find its own feet. And I suppose the, the most famous person we, we talk about is, um, as well as Marie Fontaine, is Dame Nanette de Valois. Yes. Um, so Dame Nanette de Valois is like, you know, the, the founder of British ballet. So she she danced for the Ballet Russe and she was part of that world. She she knew it very well. Um, she set up a school, a school in 1926 called the um, uh, the Academy of Choreographic Art. And she was Irish, wasn't she originally? Irish, yes. Mm. And changed her name like Margot Fontaine. Yes, yeah, she did. Because Margot Fontaine's original surname is Hookham. Yeah, Margot Fontaine is Hookham. Isn't the sort of name you want as a ballerina, is it? You can see why she changed it. Yes, but actually later on, dancers did stop changing their names because they wanted to feel wanted to feel more British in their, you know, to give this, this status. And Nanette was... Edris Stannis. Oh, Edris Stannis. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. Um, so lots of sort of violent consonants doesn't help when you're trying to come up with a name. No, and she she was dancing with the ballet Russe, so she did need to fit in. And Edris Stannis, as a name, perhaps didn't fit in in the same way. But she she was a very talented woman, a little bit like Diaghilev in the sense that she was able to bring together people that could make things happen. And she developed a partnership with Lillian Bayliss, who was, she was the manager at um, the Vic, uh, the old Vic Theatre. Um, and they decided to get lots of people together to help raise some money to renovate Sadler's Wells Theatre, because Sadler's Wells Theatre at this point was in ruins. There's some fascinating archival photographs of children sitting in the ruins of Sadler's Wells Theatre, um, and, been, there's been a lot of theatres on that site in Sadler's Wells over the years, but at that point in the late 1920s, there, there wasn't one. But they managed to get the money together and they opened Sadler's Wells Theatre. And in 1931, um, Dame Lynette de Valois started her ballet company called the Vic Wells Ballet Company. And the reason for the name is because they performed at both the old Vic Theatre and the Sadler's Wells Theatre. And there are some really interesting accounts of dancers and audiences getting very confused as to which theatre they were supposed to be going to each night. Um, they, they moved between them quite a lot. And at that time, they really had to, you know, the Vic Wells Ballet Company had to work quite hard to prove themselves um, that they were a ballet company worth their salt. You know, they could be as good as the Ballet Russe. And Dame Lynette de Bauer did this in a variety of ways. She choreographed a lot herself. She managed to find Frederick Ashton, the famous British choreographer, and he started um, choreographing um, a lot for the company. But she also decided to bring um, to Britain the, the great Russian ballets. She thought, actually, let's make these wonderfully successful ballets like The Sleeping Beauty, Capalia, Swan Lake, The Nutcracker. Let's make these the backbone of the British repertoire. So she traveled to Paris and she found this the stage manager from the Imperial Ballet who had left Russia in the wake of the October Revolution. Um, he's called um, Nicholas Sergeyev. And he, when he had left, he, when he'd left Russia, he had taken with him this trunk containing all the notation books of those famous Petipa ballets, um, 
Petipa, but also this choreographer called Lev Ivanov. And he he then helped helped her to stage these ballets. And so um, Capalia was one of the first, only the first two acts. And that's the ballet that I write about a lot in my first no novel, Clara and Olivia. That's Clara and Olivia set in 1933. And it's all in the build up to putting on the, the this production of Capalia and which Sergeyev was helping them put on. So it was, she made some really clever decisions to help give the British ballet its own feel at that time. And she also brought in some fantastic dancers. So she found Margot Fontaine when Margot Fontaine was 14. And Fontaine talks about her audition for the company where she arrived, but she didn't, hadn't brought any of her ballet clothes. So she was told to just to take off her, her tights and skirt and just perform like practice in her bare feet and she she was chosen and very quickly rose to kind of star status and did incredibly well and the and performed for many many years and in my my book the sleeping beauties she features quite a lot because the the book culminates with the performance of the sleeping beauty that opened the royal opera house after the war in 1946 and she performed as princess aurora in that performance Amazing, amazing. I was doing a bit of reading into Ninette de Valois, and you'll be able to to clear this up, actually, having been through this probably hugely strenuous process of of becoming a, a, a ballet dancer, is that I got the impression that de Valois was quite a stern mistress. And um, I mean, I, I'm sure some listeners may have seen the film Black Swan with, is it a stereotype that the 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 kind of teacher is is this really tough dancer who's been through it all themselves and has been treated badly themselves so they're just sort of re recycling the uh, the process or is that you know it's a bit overdone and actually everyone's lovely and cuddling each other at the end of every day oh, that's a really interesting question Dana Nette de Valois was terrifying everyone wanted to you know, to be performing at their best. You know, if she walked into the ballet class, the ballet studio, the atmosphere would change in that in, in that way. But that was, she did have this status as, you know, she created this company. They relied on her completely for for the development of, of ballet, for the, for the development of the company. She was a very impressive woman. And I suppose ballet, it does, yes, I think the teachers do tend to, have a reputation, an accurate reputation of being quite tough. Um, it certainly isn't going to be everyone being more friendly with each other at the end of the end of the class. And I, I think because ballet is, is so, it's a perfectionistic type of art form and you do have to be quite ruthless with yourself when you're dancing and you need, I suppose, that atmosphere whether it's whether it is necessary or not, I'm not sure. I'm I personally am still terrified by many of my ballet dancers, by, by my ballet teachers. You know, the thought of some of my ballet teachers from the Royal Ballet School. You know, they do send a bit of a shiver down your spine thinking about what they would say if they saw the way you were standing. You know, is your posture right? Or, um, but but we they have. I think ballet teachers have this fascinating relationship with their students because you you want them to notice you. And you want them to to think that you know you're a good enough dancer, but you also really want them to criticise you, <laughs> um, because if you're not criticised, if the ballet teacher you go through the entire ballet class without the teacher saying anything to you, 
then you feel like, what, what, what am I doing? They haven't even noticed me. This is terrible. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make it. It's, it's a disaster. Whereas if they give you a correction, then that feels wonderful. And you're like, yes, they, they've taken, they've taken the time to, to think about my dancing, to, to notice me. So we would come out of ballet class and we sort of like tally up how many corrections we got from the teacher in the, in the lesson. So I don't know that, I think, yes, what, uh, Black Swan, the film is obviously an exaggerated version, but I do think ballet lends itself well to books about obsession and excessive hard work and dedication and focus because you do need those things in order to make it in the ballet world. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I wonder how it will respond to nowadays where I, I guess people are a little bit more, um, I don't know what the right word is for fear of insulting a younger generation, but maybe more sensitive. I, I think perhaps some things do, do uh, could do with changing in terms of the way that young um, young girls and boys are growing up doing intense ballet but also having a very tormented relationship with their own body perhaps because you know you're getting graded on um your physique once the term and is, is diet very important they'll make sure you're eating the right foods and things like that it is important but obviously when you're a when you're a teenager and you're training that way, everyone's diet is going to be quite different because of growth spurts and you know when when you hit certain stages of your development. So it's not as simple as saying like everyone has got to be eating the same thing. It's more like you need to look a certain way. And, and the challenge is the challenge tends to be that obviously you're developing and you're changing and you're growing, but you also want to maintain that look of the the ethereal ballet dancer. And I think that is something that ballet schools are spending more time now reflecting on and thinking about, okay, how can we help these young people to be the best dancer they can without leaving kind of permanent um, damage in terms of their attitude to their own bodies? Because it's a very formative time when you're at ballet school. There's a book called um, Don't Think Dear by Alice Robb that is just coming out in paperback now. It's absolutely brilliant um, about this. And she she studied at the School of American Ballet, which is sort of the American equivalent of the Royal Ballet. And she examines George Balanchine, who is the, the, the founder of the American of New York City Ballet. And his that same sort of rep, um, relationship he had with his his dancers and sort of the fear that they they had um, whenever he came into the room and wanting to look perfect for him the whole time. And she examines ballet in the light of the uh, Me Too movement, feminism, and sort of changing attitudes to to women's roles in the world generally, because ballet is something that often treats women a little bit like like children and it's one of the really interesting things that I've seen developing more is a higher number of female choreographers you know we've been talking about all these different dancers and directors and most of them have been men Dame Nanette de Valois is one of the few women that we have mentioned um, but actually she didn't really have many female choreographers working for her she mostly had male choreographers so I think changing that balance a little bit so not having all male choreographers can be very helpful as well it's so fascinating it really is if we go back to uh, the 1930s and then into the 40s because in your book and and you've written a, a piece for us in the in our latest magazine and it's so interesting reading about the ballet company 
going on a tour mm. at rather a I think their timing could have been a little bit better well yes it's a fascinating <laughs> moment in in the company's history so by this stage the company is called the Sadler's Wells Ballet Company it's, it's May 1940 and they go off on a tour to Holland and so the Netherlands Holland is neutral at this stage you know they've not yet joined the war but looking back with hindsight now it was clearly only a matter of time before Germany invaded um and it did it it was when the ballet company was in the Hague they had just returned from um a, a day of performing in some towns quite close to the German border it was very clear the mood was changing um that Germany invaded in the battle for the Hague um and they were trapped there they they had to be evacuated there was very slow bus journeys they had a, a couple of nights in this house in the woods sort of hidden away with loads of other refugees and then traveling again on this very slow bus apparently three miles took about three hours just sort of creeping along trying to get to the the car this cargo ship they were going to get on and then across the north sea back back to england um so remarkably they all made it out alive it was fine but they did loss uh, they did lose a lot of uh, costumes and sets and notation books and schools musical schools but in my book I, one of the moments of the book, one of the key sections of it, takes place during this trip to, to Holland. And I suppose I have added a bit of extra drama to it that didn't necessarily happen. But I think it's still a really dramatic event to happen. And uh, there's, there's a brilliant diary, very lengthy diary account of it from one of the Corps de Ballet members who's written about um, every sort of stage of the trip, which is just absolutely wonderful kind of gold dust for someone, for a historical writer, a fiction writer who finds something like that and is able to use as many of those details as I as I could in my in my novel. Yeah, I mean, I've I've got visions of these poor ballerinas in the sort of coach worrying about. You know, that's not what they signed up for, was it? No, and lots of them were incredibly young. So I, uh, the Damonette de Valois memoir um, of and her writing about this, you know, she does talk about feeling this great responsibility that she has taken these very young dancers, some of them aren't even 20 yet, and and she is responsible for them and she's got to get them back to their parents um, safe and sound. And, they, you know, they did not expect this to happen during the trip though there are some accounts of this trip um, this tour that suggests that the British Council who sent them um, Lord Lloyd who sent them did get information that suggested there might be a German invasion around that time but they could not cancel the trip because it would sort of re reveal the carefully planned espionage that had gone into it whether that is true or not I'm not sure but it's certainly something that quite a few of the dancers talk about when they when they have written about this moment. I also wonder, they perhaps saw a different side to de Valois. Perhaps she had a, a broader maternal instinct during this difficult time. Maybe. <laughs> so where's ballet today? I mean, probably Billy Elliot's been huge, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's 20 years old now, so maybe you probably have a, a view on where ballet is sort of 20 years on today. I'm going to use this dreaded word elitist, mm. but do you think that's fair still? 
Going back to that idea of ballet constantly changing status, I think ballet went through an elitist state, uh, time. It went through a time when actually it was difficult to afford ballet lessons. It was difficult to afford to go to the theatre. And I think it still is. But I think that more is happening now to try and encourage more people to be able to go to the theatre or um, to be able to go to, to, to a ballet school to take ballet lessons. The Royal Opera House, for example, does do quite a lot of young person evenings where they're you know, cheaper tickets and they're trying to change the way that you might look at um, looking at go, going to the theatre. Because I remember maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, always feeling really difficult to get a ticket for something at the theatre, at the, at the Royal Opera House, because the tickets would just go immediately and then they were really expensive. But there are now ways of that they're trying to open it up more. I think also with one of the big changes in making ballet feel a little bit more accessible for everyone has been social media, because in the past, the whole ballerina lifestyle was very hidden. It was sort of this glamorous life with probably some pain underneath. But you didn't really know anything about it. But now, like ballet talk or <laughs> ballet Instagram is huge and lots of these very well, famous dancers, but also members of the Corps of Ballet, people of elite ballet schools, they will be putting up these little videos all the time about, you know, day in the life as a ballet dancer, or how I prepare my point shoes, or let's take a look backstage, or like my warm-up routine before I go on stage. And I think that has been really great for showing, yes, ballet's very strange world, but also making showing everyone that world and making it easier to understand what it is that goes on behind the scenes. So perhaps that's had a bit of a change as well. But I think if you if you think back to ballet during the Second World War, it was it was quite accessible in the sense that the Saddlesworth Ballet Company was touring all over the country. Like no town was too small for them. You know, they were working incredibly hard to take ballet all around the place. And that's when I think this sort of love of, of ballet started to grow nationally. But it's it's how you maintain that accessibility even in, in normal times as well. I suppose that's the that's the challenge really. Yeah, that's extraordinary that they were doing that, you know, during war. One would imagine that I mean it would be difficult to persuade dancers to um to do that nowadays if there was a war on and you've got a bombing campaign. Mm. in major cities throughout the United Kingdom. So your book's launched tomorrow. Have you sent copies to your former directors at the ballet? Uh, yes. So, well, actually, some of my ballet teachers are coming to my book launch party tomorrow, and they came as well to, to the Clara and Olivia one last year. So that was really nice, and I ended up doing an interview back at the Royal Ballet School last time for Clara and Olivia as well, which was great because I suppose I had been a little bit nervous about kind of coming back into the ballet world this way. You know, I'd been a dancer from my formative years and then I'd left it I'd gone to university I'd become an English teacher and I didn't really feel like the ballet world was for me anymore and I think it's, it's always very difficult when you leave something you've been doing that intensely and you have to either just actually I can't deal with that anymore I'm moving on I'm doing something else or or you come back to it and I think for me ballet just never left me I had I remained I remained passionate about it and writing Clara and Olivia and The Sleeping Beauties 
has been so fulfilling because it's been a way of coming back to ballet in a way that works for me it's through literature which is my other great love um, so it's been a very rewarding time actually great stuff well so for listeners links uh, are all in the show notes this has been absolutely fascinating i guess it's a world that many people are unaware of but when you kind of pull back the cover and you know even learning about the the point shoes i guess even if you're in a, a smaller role in a ballet production the work even to get there is oh, absolutely i mean the, for the number of places in a company compared to the number of people training to dance i mean not very a very small percentage is actually going to make it into a company so it's a very difficult career to embark upon that's for sure lucy it's been fantastic thanks so much for coming on thank you it really did all change at the start of the 20th century because of the russian revolution and we think about some of the really famous Russian dancers or those associated with dancing, like well, Anna Pavlova and Diaghilev, who's the great empresario of the Ballet Russe. They, they left Russia and never went back after the Russian Revolution. So these great Russian ballets then became the repertoire of, in Europe and in, in Britain. Thank you for listening. Coming up, I've got plenty of great history in this month's film club, which is Bonnie and Clyde and Public Enemies as a double bill, both movies on 1930s gangsters, which will be a nice warm-up for my chat about the mafia with Louis Fodante. But until then, thank you and good night. <laughs>